This is the big electron. The big electron. again let's start <laughs> sciencing yeah welcome to the big electron on kcou 88.1 we had a little bit of a different intro there <laughs> yeah which is new information for all of us who are sitting right here so. yes um today in uh the show we will be um celebrating saint patrick's day yay, yay! which is coming up this week and um yeah. Oh, I'm Anahita. I'm Madeline. I'm Adam. And uh, we're so excited to have you here with mm -hmm. us. Um, we're missing Jackie today. That's okay. <laughs> In the okay. meantime, we can talk about science. Yeah. So like I said, we're celebrating St. Patrick's Day today. And um, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, St. Patrick and um, a little fun science. Absolutely. Herpology, is that what it's called? What? Herpology? Herpetology. Uh, herpetology? Yes. <laughs> My I am apology. unfamiliar with herpology. <laughs> uh, I'll look it up. We'll see what it is. It's um, a study of something. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's talk about uh, about St. Patrick. St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland, which uh, is uh, probably for a good reason, because he went to Ireland uh, a long time ago to do various things. And one of those things was building cool stuff, uh, yes. as, as I think we'll hear a little bit more about uh, later. But probably his most famous exploit, uh, if, you, if you believe this, is banishing snakes from Ireland. Uh, Ireland doesn't have any snakes on it. Thanks to St. Patrick, right? Supposedly thanks to St. <laughs> Patrick. I'm about, to, uh, I'm about to suggest a controversial theory that uh -oh. perhaps... Uh -oh. Perhaps he didn't um, mm -hmm. actually banish the snakes. Um, With and the flute, right? That's the story. He had a, some sort of flute or something, and he like. I'm. He got them. Oh yeah, he like away. sang them out yeah. of Ireland. Yeah. Like like played a tune. It's a totally right? plausible story. I mean, I I've heard snakes don't like flutes. So uh, yeah. That seems reasonable to me. <laughs> that that is all one one theory. Yeah, we can we can you know. Uh, consider that as an alternative, but um, I'm going to suggest something else. What if there weren't any snakes in Ireland to begin with? What if... Like uh, ever? Yeah, what if he drove mm. them out of Ireland because they weren't there? <laughs> that would be the easiest way to do it. Like ever. Um, or at least like for a long time, say millions of years, um, that Ireland has not had snakes. So, first of all, we should we should say why that... Um, people might, you know, pretty reasonably consider the lack of snakes in Ireland to be a miracle because there are snakes in just about every place on this earth. Just about every bit of land surface um, except like Antarctica or Greenland mm -hmm. or places that are 
um, far too icy to have terrestrial life like that. Uh, but if it's, you know, dry surface, there's probably snakes around somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not Ireland. Uh, and the reason for that uh, may be St. Patrick, but it may have something to do with this fact. Snakes, you may remember, are warm-blooded. So that Cold-blooded. Cold-blooded. <laughs> snakes are cold-blooded. That's what I said. Absolutely. Should we um, talk about that really fast? Yeah, I yes. think so. Snakes, sure. snakes being cold-blooded means that their body temperature is... is I'm sorry, their blood's cold, right? Like well, it's just free, all the time. freezing cold. <laughs> well, <laughs> ice blood. Not, not necessarily <laughs> freezing cold, but it does mean that it's very susceptible to the exterior environment. It means mm-hmm. that unlike us mammals, uh, they don't internally generate enough heat to be constantly at the same temperature. So if it's cold weather outside, then their blood's going to be colder. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a cup of coffee, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to change its temperature depending on what temperature it is outside. Snakes are like that. Um, so they can't tolerate extreme cold. They can tolerate temperatures in Ireland, but mm-hmm. okay. they couldn't tolerate it in, say, Greenland or Iceland, which are two other places that don't have snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, those are just too cold. Ireland's not that cold, but it was. It has been on and off for the last three million years or so. There have been ice ages that you might have heard of (laughs) from cartoons of the same name um, that have sort of led to glaciers and extreme cold weather swarming down into what is now pretty comfortable parts of Europe. Um, So Ireland was in this extreme cold range and could not... um, and uh, could not support any kind of uh, cold-blooded creature like a snake, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they all would have died off or disappeared from that area. And this would have been true for a big chunk of Europe, including Britain and Scandinavia and all these other all these other places at that latitude. So then, uh, about between ten and fifteen thousand years ago, the glaciers started melting, and the weather started warming, and a warm, comfortable, snake-friendly climate started moving north again, including into the region of Ireland. But the snakes didn't come with it, because Ireland, as you might be familiar with, is an island. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been land bridges at different times when sea level has been different, you know, bits and pieces of like Britain or Ireland have been connected to each other or to the main continent in Europe. And snakes did cross those land bridges into, into what is now Britain. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, now Island of Ireland was never connected to the mainland at exactly the right time. Uh, when there were snakes already there available to move mm-hmm. over. And snakes don't swim. <laughs> so that well, only the scary ones in Australia. Only only the scary Australian ones, which apparently <laughs> don't swim that far, uh, like around the world. <laughs> um, so he's famous. We we wear green and celebrate this man for a lie. Well <laughs> he does he did other things, I presume. That's uh, but, true. But the way the method is really all we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He he may have banished snakes, but he did it through a lengthy geologic process <laughs> over millions of years rather than with a flute. Um, so that is Fair. that is the reason Ireland has no snakes. Uh, Saint Patrick is also the patron saint of engineering. Okay. Um, so he is so because he uh, introduced um, wet masonry to Ireland. So previously they pretty much built buildings or castles or whatever mm-hmm. by stacking stones and maybe putting a little mud between them t- so that they're kind of sticky. Okay. But like that would dry and it would become sand eventually. 
Um, and so he introduced wet masonry to Ireland and, and uh, helped build a lot of the churches that way, earning him the title of patron saint of engineering. That's cool. Yeah, which we celebrate St. Patrick's Day pretty um, pretty much all week here. It's, it's E-Week, Engineering Week at the <laughs> University of Missouri. And so our administrative building uh, lights their lights up green and the engineering cool. students have all these traditions and like... Um, activities going on throughout the week because University of Missouri has the oldest engineering department in the country. I did not know that. That's really crazy. Yeah. And there's like things like if you walk with your significant other through like certain parts of town or parts of campus Uh by the engineering building or do certain things, then you'll get married. Or (laughs) if you're alone, you can like do certain things and that's how you marry an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) It's like there's really cute traditions around it here at the University of Missouri. That's really funny. But yeah, so engineering and St. Patrick's Day, definitely a link there. Huh. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's very lucky for us. Yeah. <laughs> you might be familiar with the St. Patrick being associated with luck, the mm-hmm. luck of the Irish or some mm-hmm. such nonsense. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, over the course of the show about luck and mm-hmm. about what counts as luck and what mm-hmm. equals lucky. And we're also going to touch on a little bit uh, about um, engineering yes. because mm-hmm. of course St. Patrick's Day mm-hmm. when you think of St. Patrick's Day you think of engineering um, I do now least, I do now there, yeah there I did you not go before. Uh, well obviously uh, so yeah what shall we why don't you give us a little a little bit of engineering up top oh of course well why don't we talk about the most important um, bit of modern engineering that has really um, impacted our country Mm-hmm. Uh, and our world over major the last ways. hundred years in, in a major way. And of I course, I'm talking anything that's more important, to be honest. Uh, of course, I'm talking, as you know, about pinball machines. <laughs> um, so um, <laughs> just a, a brief history, a refresher, if you will, <laughs> of the history of pinball machines, which I'm sure you know this because who doesn't know all about the history of pinball machines. But um, the... Um, the pinball machine was invented in, and yes, this is from a combination of the encyclopedia and Wikipedia, so, um, was uh, first invented in like the 1870s. Wow. Um, but yeah, it, or maybe even earlier than that. And I think it's a bit it's a bit fuzzy okay. when it first came about. But this was not what we would recognize as a pinball machine now. It was okay. sort of, it was a purely mechanical object, you know, no bells and whistles, none of the, none of the stuff we associate it with. Lame. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty, Good pretty lame version though, of it, probably. but you know, it would have been just a, a neat pastime for people stuck in a room somewhere for a long period of time with nothing else to do. <laughs> like say winter? Uh, like, yeah, like the winter or, you know, I don't know where <laughs> they would have played these things, but they would have been big clunky things that were purely operated on a mechanical basis. But then, um, some exciting technology came around called electricity, um, which, as again, you know, its most important effect was to allow more advanced pinball machines. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, starting in the 1930s, pinball machines started to become this um, bit of electrical engineering, if you will. Um, they would use uh, solenoids, which are those coiled-looking tube thingies okay. uh, of wires, is basically mm. just those coils. You know, you've got one in your car, also called mm-hmm. the solenoid. You know, it's just that bit of you know wire wrapped around a spool or something like that, which allows a certain sort of magnetic field to exist around that coil if you're sending an electrical charge through it. 
So they started building pinball machines with a bunch of these embedded in it, uh, which allowed you to, um, say, bounce a metal or, or steel you know, ball, mm-hmm. the little pinball, uh-huh. uh, off of it, and it would recognize that this steel thing has intruded on its magnetic oh. space. And you could have it automatically in this electromechanical kind of way, mm-hmm. count up points huh. uh, based on the number of times it hit this particular solenoid or this other solenoid hmm. and so on. I had so no idea were, that's how they work. Yeah, if you were to look underneath the board of one of these uh, old-timey pinball machines, mm-hmm. uh, you would find a whole bunch of these solenoids, with, you know, copper wire or something wrapped around a spool underneath each one of the point counters or various other mechanical things like mm-hmm. the flipper controls uh-huh. that you're that you're using to paddle the ball around. So these were the forerunners to all the video games that we're playing now. Yeah. Because, you know, this was sort of like, like I was thinking of it before, it's like baby video games in Mm -hmm. a way. It's like, this is like the the in-between step as our our time wasters evolved from... The first time we found out how addicting these things could be. Yeah. This is like the the evolutionary stage in between when we actually used to do stuff and now (laughs) when we sit tapping our thumbs on our phones and and video game consoles. So thank you, Pinball Machine, for allowing me to... Text and drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're welcome. No, um, no, no. But, but yeah, so there's this sort of you know this is the stage of engineering. You know this this very basic kind of electrical engineering that sort of moved us from huh. what we think of as old timey to to now. You mm-hmm. know, so pinball machines got you know more and more popular. They were at their peak in like the 1970s. You know, you've probably heard that song Pinball Wizard by The Who. Uh-huh. If yeah. you've ever heard that, you know, that was like 1969 or something okay. like that. And, you know, it stayed popular until until the 1980s mm-hmm. when something happened which which killed off um which killed off pinball machines effectively uh, for good, which is that all three of us were born. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It was also that video game came along, uh-huh. you know, and instead of electromechanical games, arcades started to be filled with actual just electronic mm-hmm. video games. Huh. And so... Um, That's cool. It's tactile, but... Yeah, so um, I, just, uh, I just really got a kick out of that... Um, really got a kick out of that yeah, um, connection between you know, actual mechanical objects and the uh, completely TV-based stuff that we do now. Yeah. So I think St. Patrick would approve Saint, pinball machines. Mm-hmm. St. Patrick would probably love pinball machines. I don't know what he would think about electronic gizmos. But, uh, he'd, probably, he'd probably appreciate anything that took that much thought to build. Sure. So, <laughs> but there we have it. So, cool. St. Patrick, patron saint of pinball machines. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so... Uh, later on today's show, we're going to be talking more about luck and mm-hmm. St. Patrick's Day and everything. And as scientists, I think we kind of think of luck as more along the lines of statistics. Yeah. You know, how likely is this event actually to occur? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, one of my favorite things that I've learned about statistics is about babies. <laughs> and, and, um, like uh, when you think of what babies, they'll come you out think of like? <laughs> well, that's true, too, right? It's a genetic, genetic dice roll every time you have a baby, but that's yeah. not what we're talking about today. Um, so basically, this is the idea that that babies, infants, have this innate sense of of statistics. Hmm. So um, some of the evidence for this, I love baby research because I find it thoroughly entertaining. Because the way they do all this research is by watching how long the baby looks at something. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. 
It's That's an adorable really fun. <laughs> yeah. How do I get into the science yeah. of watching babies? <laughs> watching babies watch things. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, this research, the idea is, so you show a baby a box, and this box has a bunch of ping pong balls in it, and most of them are red, and there's a few white ones in there. So, okay, look at the box. And then they reach into the box, and they pull out a red ball. Mm-hmm. The box is mostly red, so, like, that seems pretty reasonable. The baby doesn't really care that much. Yeah, but statistically, then, you'd assume red. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty likely to happen. So then in a similar experiment, what they can do is if they have a white ball already picked out and mm-hmm. they pull out the white ball, the baby gets all confused and stares at it. <laughs> and because that's what babies do. Well, that, that does sound quite babyish. Yeah. So yeah. they're surprised, they're by, surprised. Th- by the white ball uh-huh. coming out. They're like, this doesn't make sense and they're trying to process it. Um, one of the funniest things about this um, study is that apparently their surprise, mm-hmm. quote unquote, is staring at it for two seconds. <laughs> Which is not that long to me. Like, that's the amount of time I would be like, what? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, it would take and you that long just to get surprised, on. basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I can't help but think we're kind of um, just messing these babies up. And just I, now they just think that could happen sometimes. You know, whatever. But yeah, like two seconds is a long time for, I mean, like a minute is a long time for a child. That's true. So like two seconds to a baby must just like be eternity. They have only been alive for so long. For many like, minutes. Yeah, it's like such a big percentage of their lifespan yeah. is two seconds. Yep. Yeah, so maybe that's it. Um, but yeah, they, you know, did all sorts of other kind of control experiments mm-hmm. like We'll show you the box and then pull the ping pong ball out of our pocket. And the baby doesn't care because, like, he he doesn't know what's in your pocket. Well, that's really Uh, awesome. Yeah. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, just an interesting way of figuring out what's going on in these babies' heads. This does sound like it would be difficult to get bored of the research if you were doing it. Yeah. That would be... (laughs) This would be an entirely different kind of thing than what what some of us do here. And an entirely different kind of frustrating. Like, yeah. I do not have to change people's diapers if my experiment goes wrong. <laughs> like, I imagine there's certain... That's certain occupational hazards that come with that. I suppose there's perks of not <laughs> not having to do that. But That's uh, true. I wonder yeah. about, like... I know that we probably don't have anything lined up, but if, if pets have a similar result. Like, I, I, I always know. think about when I trick a dog... Mm-hmm. Like I pretend to throw a toy and they like run after it mm-hmm. and they'll search for it because they like, I wonder if that has something to do with I don't know. their expectations or if I'm just really good at being sneaky with dogs. That would, <laughs> none, <laughs> that would be very interesting. None of us are animal psychologists, but I know there's a whole field out there. Yeah. So I bet we can find some so. pretty mm-hmm. elaborate studies of very enthusiastic. Or if anyone listening uh, is interested in donating to my new research project, <laughs> I will be throwing a throw toy a for a dog <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> very neat. All right. Well, we'll go on our first musical break now. Um, and then we'll be back with some more science and, well, I guess engineering and luck and yep. all of that. All the good stuff. Um, we're back today on KCOU 88.1, and again, we're celebrating St. Patrick's Day here in the studio, and um, I want to talk about, well, we're all lucky people. Sure. Um, but then, then I think we should really, like, capitalize on, the, like, really, really get something out of it, mm-hmm. and therefore, I think we should start gambling. All right. I'm <laughs> and, down. Um, 
Well, actually, so <laughs> that brings me into gambling was my awkward segue. <laughs> um, a team led by a behavioral economics at the Stockholm School of Economics and Dr. Anna Dreber um, decided to use uh, the idea of gambling to discuss the validity I guess, of science projects or science experiments that were going on. Okay. And so this has to do with the topic that we talked about last week, which was reproducibility. It was actually following the concept of the reproducibility project for psychology and saying, um, instead of us testing all of these mm -hmm. experiments for reproducibility, we need to find a way to isolate certain ones that are most likely to be reproducible and reproduce those first because there's only so much money uh -huh. and time for this. Or maybe the ones that are n likely to not be reproducible, right? And, and make sure we debunk those. Yes. Exactly. Uh -huh. it, it's a way to target how this funding, how this project uh -huh. is going to go instead of just being like, we got to do them all. Yeah. Because that's spending twice the money for one project yep. that it deserves. But we're not talking about just using like a roulette wheel to decide which projects <laughs> get funded or not. No, we're not. Okay. What we did or what uh, this team did was they gave a group of people who are not affiliated with science necessarily. Um, it wasn't like their peers in the department or anything like that. It was okay. just a random group of people. Okay. And they gave them $100 and mm -hmm. said that they had to bet on which research project was going to be reproducible. Oh, wow. Hmm. And by forcing... So... By oh, and what they found out, I guess I should say from this was that people were more likely to bet on the ones that were reproducible. Okay. And so the kind of theory behind this was that if you give people money and you you say this is you have to bet this money, but you get to keep whatever. If you win, you get to keep it. Okay. Then they'll take more time in analyzing the projects. Sure. And it uses the wisdom of crowds or like crowdsources this this thought process behind which research projects we should study okay. um, to a group of people. And so huh. instead of like the scientists sitting down and using what science tells them should be reproducible, yeah. people are just able to logic it out uh -huh. and decide which hmm. psychology experiments were reproducible. And that's pretty cool that they're non-scientists. You know, they're not necessarily pouring over the, those p-values that can sometimes be, you know, helpful, but also misleading if you're using right. them wrong. Right. Yeah, they're not worried about that yeah. uh, necessarily. They're just wondering, you know, does this make sense? Yeah, that is an interesting method. I mean, yeah. we'll, we'll have to wait and see whether it's applied. The gambling uh, um, was right about 71% of the time. Huh, hmm. that's pretty good. Yeah. It's better than 50%. I mean, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, was this like... Either choose this one or that one, because you know at that point your odds are fifty percent. Well, no, it, it seemed like four? they could uh, they could gamble even like fifty cents of their oh. money, so they could put a hundred dollars in any project they wanted. Oh, but they, they could diversify could, their portfolio. Exactly, <laughs> D diversifying their science <laughs> <Okay>. portfolio. <laughs> and then yeah, and at then, the end of the day, whichever one has the most money in it. Right, and they said that some people. I think in the end, most people. Um, that were correct, doubled their money. Wow. So they left with $200. That's cool. And uh, it's kind of funny because um, they like followed up, I guess this article I'm basing it off of in science followed it up 
by asking people what they spent it on. And uh-huh. they said that a couple of people found that they were like, oh, since I spent the day learning about science, I, I figured I might as well buy a science book or something oh, like wow. that. And so they ended up just like, <laughs> it's anecdotal evidence, yeah. but it was just kind of funny that they were like, oh, science is cool. Oh, that's so I made all this money from science, so I'm going to spend a little money on science. <laughs> that's super cool. That is... That is definitely St. Patrick's E in yeah. terms of luck. So that's um, good luck. So what about when there's no money on the line? Oh, good question. When there was no money on the line, people were not as invested in analyzing the research projects, okay. or this was the idea behind it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't as successful. We weren't hitting that 71% rate. It was closer to 39%, I believe. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and so it was almost... I guess because they almost always wrong, like it, it moved the other direction sure. completely. Huh. <laughs> and um, yeah, because yeah, 71 is 39 away from 100. So it's completely opposite direction. Wow. Um, but yeah. That's neat. Wow. And it was because the idea being that these people weren't just investigating, they weren't thinking about it because it wasn't worth their time mm-hmm. to think about it. And so yeah, if, but if you could win $200, if you could win $200, yeah. So if there was a little bit like if horse racing had a little bit of like logic to it uh-huh. and like, like statistics about the horse were more like provided for the gamblers, uh-huh. they would probably be picking more logical but outcomes. This, probably certain people don't want that to happen. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it probably doesn't happen. This they actually, I think it's because of your lucky underwear. <laughs> <laughs> this actually sounds kind of like it touches on the way some uh, research actually is done, I mean, on a large scale already in terms of just, you know, the various for-profit companies, oh, yeah. you know, pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. seed companies that mm-hmm. do this kind of research. I mean, somebody's analyzing that to see whether they think it's going to, to work or not. Right. And then in taking a, making a bet on whether it will work, it just happens to be bet with massive amounts of money and uh, it's not theirs. But the same idea is, is at play in a way. I mean, you're trying... Except that's using experts, I suppose. So yeah. maybe that defeats the purpose of the, the gamblers. Yeah, I don't know. That would be really interesting to see, like, you know, if they did this, but with scientists or with psychologists specifically, mm-hmm. you know, would they have the same? Well, psychologists, uh, they kind of mentioned it, and I don't have any specific numbers or anything about it, but they mentioned that it, what people were betting on tend to not have been what the people who designed this gambling experiment thought they would wow. pick. So it was what these specific psychologists did not think was That's interesting. what was reproducible. Okay. Fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. I, I really wonder though if it wasn't psychology, which is a little bit more relatable if it was something yeah. really specific like like or my research, it, which or, is like yeah. developing a laser. I wonder <laughs> yeah. if people would just be like, oh yeah, it's probably reproducible. Because, yeah. Or if they were like, no, that sounds insane. Like I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Well, but it, developing your laser versus someone else developing their laser, I, you know, probably yeah. most people, I would think, wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I couldn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it would probably be more random at that point. Yeah, it's I just, think so. Then we could see how lucky people are. That would be all the way into luck and gambling, basically. (laughs) Very cool. Well, Well, further on that topic, mm -hmm. um, I found this super interesting article about this guy who studies luck and lucky people and why they are lucky and how they believe they are lucky and and or unlucky. Um, So this guy, um, he said a bunch of ads out in newspapers 
which is your first indication that this study is not exactly recent. It's from like the mid nineties. <laughs> because uh, newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the writer of this article is um, Richard Weisman, and um, he. Uh, I like that name, Richard Weisman. Richard that Weisman. sounds like a scientist to yeah. me. <laughs> I trust him already. He sounds like a wise man. <laughs> that must be what it is. So uh, he he set out these ads and said, are you a lucky person or are you particularly unlucky? Either way, contact me. I want to talk to you. And so he got all these people that would write to him and tell them all these great stories about how lucky they are or how unlucky they were. And so then he kind of just followed up on these people and sent them a bunch of surveys about how they view life and, Mm -hmm. you know, why they think they're unlucky and stuff like this. And so um, some of his findings were not so surprising. For example, one thing was that turns out that lucky people really just have a better outlook on life. So maybe the bad things happen to them, but they don't necessarily see it as um, a trait of being unlucky. So for example, Hmm. he said there was this one guy who came in with a leg, like a cast one day and he goes, Oh no, what happened? And the guy goes, Oh my gosh, I fell down the stairs. And he said, okay, so do you feel unlucky because of that? And the guy said, Oh no, it could have been so much worse. It was a really bad fall and all, you know, it's just a broken leg. Oh. And so, you know, whereas you can easily see that. that make, I didn't think about it like yeah, that. That the it's alternative. all in the eye of the beholder yeah. of what is lucky. Sure. So it's sort of a self-fulfilling yes. luckiness yeah. in this case. So um, it actually ends up getting more self-fulfilling um, in kind of some ways that you're more in control of. Uh, so let's see. Um one of the other things that lucky people tend to do is follow their intuition, which is, you know, that's hard to measure. <laughs> that's kind of a yeah. hard thing to describe and, how, and everything like that. I'm like but, wondering um, how that experiment's set up. Yeah. Are they asking like for instinct? Like, um, let me, I think, I do think there was some evidence behind this. So, you know, he always was having people play games and like mm-hmm. how, talk about how they made their decisions and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it tended to be that the unlucky people would make very logical decisions that were contrary to their intuitions. And hmm. so, uh-huh. so I'm just way too logical oh, to yeah, be apparently. lucky. <laughs> um, yeah, which is frustrating because, you know, I always, I would prefer to make logical decisions. Yeah. They seem this, less scary. This, this <laughs> sounds, oh, oh, go ahead. Uh, well, this sounds like something I heard a long time ago about, um, psychological studies that people who are you know, um, not depressed have inflated opinions about their own abilities in certain things. Whereas people who are depressed, uh, have lower opinions of themselves, which are more realistic. Yeah. Uh, this sounds kind of like that. Yeah. At that point you would be more likely to look out for logical cues to tell you how to act. Whereas if you just believe Mm -hmm. that you're awesome, then you just naturally have that. Right, which sort of puts all of us in a bind. I mean, none Mm -hmm. of us wants to be depressed, but none of us wants to be delusionally uh, arrogant or conceited either. So it's. I was going to say, this kind of makes me think of, this is totally crazy. I have this book, and it's kind of like a how-to win at Monopoly. Okay. And it has a disclaimer chapter about how Monopoly's 50% skill or logic and 50% luck okay. and how those two things are inherently different yeah. and that you cannot be logical and lucky at the same time, Oh, hmm. specifically within Monopoly. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, uh, 
will say that this is absolutely 100% true. I have lost every game since reading this book <laughs> oh. because I know all the tricks of what you're logically supposed to do. Wow, uh -huh. it ruined your Monopoly it ability totally and does. you can't get it back. Or maybe I just expected to win now having read the book. Uh -huh. And if I don't win, then... It's it a failure. Or yeah. you just magnified. You feel unlucky. Yeah. Because you've lost a monopoly. Absolutely. But it could have been so much worse. It could have I mean, been so much so worse. I could have been the first one out of monopoly instead of like the second. You could have lost at checkers. Oh my god. I goodness. mean you could have lost at any number of other much more much more easy to win games. Uh, yeah. so I mean really it yeah. sounds like the luck thing is very much a matter of interpretation. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, another one of his studies. He, so he took a, a newspaper and he gave it to all these people and he said, okay, count how many pictures are in the newspaper. And so people go through and count. And, um, the, but turns out there's giant text on the, on the newspaper that says there are 43 pictures in this paper. Stop looking. And so then he, you know, saw how long it took them to figure this out. And so, you know, like two minutes later, the, all the unlucky people say, well, I think there was 43 or 44 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And... You know, after 10 seconds, all the lucky people said, well, apparently there was 43. And so he used that to say that the lucky people were watching out for these chance occurrences that were just opportunistic. Um, and yeah, I would have checked. I would have counted. Yeah, I think we're I would, afterward. Yeah, sure. I'm too, that's reasonable. I'm too distrustful to have <laughs> believed such a note. So I'm creating my own bad luck as uh -huh. many of those and people oh, perhaps that's really will. interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, then in a similar study, he um, not only had it say, stop counting, because there's 43, he said, stop counting, tell the experimenter you have seen this and win 250 pounds. <laughs> uh, and so again, the unlucky Hopefully people... Hopefully the British currency and not a weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, but yeah, so... So to be lucky, you need to consider the things that do happen to you mm -hmm. as positive. You need to be on the lookout for chance opportunities. Um, and the one that I thought was the coolest and the least intuitive was that people who are lucky are, are less likely to be creatures of habit. They're less likely to take the same route to work every day. They're less likely to interact with the exact same people every day. They introduce a lot of variety into their life. And so at that point, you know, there's just a lot more random chance opportunities that will happen. Hmm. Um, you know, you meet these, this crazy new person. And so, hmm. um, so then he even designed a luck school and like, you know, taught people how to be more lucky and oh how to goodness. integrate these things into their lives. And so after that, um, both the people who, previously had categorized themselves as lucky and unlucky. They both considered themselves even more lucky. So that was cool. Um, and yeah, so some of these people said they would incorporate things like this guy goes to a party and he says, okay, I'm going to talk to everyone in a red shirt. And so that's his way of introducing variability into his life because like normally I don't know about you like I go talk to maybe like this shy person sitting in the corner. because Right. It's something that draws you to a specific yeah. person, but it's usually like how they're behaving. Yeah. Not and often they're probably someone like me. Like I'm probably drawn to them because they seem familiar to me. Mm -hmm. um, Which is not are, a random process. No. Not going to yeah. have you talking to different So it has to be someone with a red shirt as long as you're not wearing a red shirt. Sure. Yeah, that's true. Because then we're too similar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I thought that was cool. Introduce more variability in your life. Yeah. 
That is Take the odd road to school. The idea of a school for luck sounds physically impossible to me, <laughs> but it's that is fascinating. It Absolutely. also kind of makes me think about like confidence. Yeah. Like if I'm just confident that I will get something done, that yeah. I'm going to get it done, but I might attribute that to luck. Yeah. Hmm. But I don't know. Lots of things here. I'm going to wow. give us a little bit about lucky streaks. Okay. So when you're placing a bet on a game, like uh, which science experiment is reproducible, mm -hmm. as we My all do, game. <laughs> or roulette or craps. <laughs> the game I play every day. It turns out that um, how or that your betting will shift your odds. So if you uh, or yeah, your betting shifts your odds. A person who wins two bets in a row has a higher somewhere around 57% chance of winning the next one. But a person who just lost two bets in a row has only a 40% chance of winning the next one. So according to a study, um, people, again, fear that like as they lose bets, that they're going to lose more money. Okay. And so they compensate it by making safer bets. Okay. Uh, so this is when there's some variability possible right. in the type of bets you make, okay. not just right. the you know, fixed process. Sure. That, that makes sense. I was thinking there was some genuine lucky streaks going yeah. on here. But then as people win safe bets, they'll probably, they think they'll probably keep winning. So then they end up betting riskier bets. bets. So uh, it's like overall, they try, to, they try to ease back to compensate for the fact that they've been losing. Okay. And then when that works, they go all in and lose big. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's so terrible. Right. So you shouldn't let your past experiences dictate your okay. craps or roulette so, betting. We are so vulnerable, yeah. our mm -hmm. brains. <laughs> okay, so again, so am it's, I understanding it's, this right? Like it, it makes you shift more towards the middle. It makes you shift more towards the middle rather than being a little bit more winning. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Wow. It's very wave-like going too far <laughs> yeah, and not right. going far enough. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like people who like put money in stocks and as soon as it starts dropping, they pull it out yeah. versus people who will leave it in for the long term yeah. and mm. ride out that wave. Wow. That is mm. fascinating. Well, on uh, a related note, let's talk about polyploidy. <laughs> um, that is that is not a related note at all. A <laughs> note for listeners there, and you probably never heard this word that I just said. Unless, unless you talk to Adam, unless or you're him speak ever. Yeah, unless you've ever talked to me ever, <laughs> uh, because um, let's talk uh, more specifically about four leaf clovers, uh, a lucky um, a lucky plant that you might just find around associated with Ireland and its mm -hmm. famous luck. Um, and the reason a four-leaf clover is notable and lucky to find is that most of them have three leaves. A mm -hmm. three-leaf clover is the, the standard normal type. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about clovers and, and the luck that produces a four-leaf clover. And this is a, a type of luck that's near and dear uh, to my heart because it's a genetic type of luck. Mm -hmm. um, so clovers, there's a whole bunch of different kinds. There's th over 300 different species, um, as I have found out, uh, thanks to an article uh, which actually, luckily, was provided by Anahita. So thank you very much. Um, but the one that we're talking about here is the uh, so-called white clover, which is the main species that you'll see hanging around and which normally has three leaves. Um, that um, So geneticists have been trying to figure out exactly 
what gene is responsible for making that extra leaf, you know, from turning it into a three-leaf clover to a four-leaf clover. And the good news is uh, some folks have finally done it. The bad news is it was really hard for them. And the reason it was really hard is because uh, clovers are something called an allotetraploid. And that is the kind of work I do personally. In my, <laughs> Not in a my word field. I've heard before, to be I, honest. <laughs> well, let's, let's break it down. So um, um, when we're talking about ploidy, this is a made-up Greek element <laughs> that, um, that basically means how many copies of your genes you have. Mm-hmm. Every one of us, every, every human being, is what's called a diploid. That's die and ploid, so that's like... Mm-hmm two copies. Mm-hmm. So it means we get one copy of all of our genes, all the chromosomes and stuff. We get one copy of that from our mother and one copy of that from our father. And both of those copies, that more or less match each other. You know, there's some little differences in there for, you know, how these genes look. But we basically got two copies of everything, one from mom and one from dad. Um, that's how plants work too. That's how pretty much every living thing out there works. You get, you know, some set of genes that uh, comes from one parent and a matching set that comes from the other. And both of those sets exist simultaneously in all of your cells. Mm-hmm. A polyploid means that you've got more than two. Okay. It means that you've gotten an extra set from one or both parents. So these plants, these clovers, they're what's called a tetraploid. They've got four copies. They get two copies of every gene from mom and two copies from dad. Okay. And Does that matter? It does, um, because it's a whole lot of genetic material. And if you've got four copies instead of two, it makes it a whole lot harder to find one individual thing. Oh, Um, okay. Especially, yeah, because there's so much redundancy built into the system at that point. You know, these are healthy plants. They're not, it's not a problem for them, Mm -hmm. but it means that if we're looking for something in that mess, it's going to take a lot longer to find. Those poor scientists. Yeah, those poor scientists. So so it's called an allotetraploid. So here's another element. The aloe means different. Basically what that means is that the origin of this species is that it had a diploid plant over here with just two copies of everything like normal Mm -hmm. and another diploid plant of a um, closely related species. So these plants shared a common ancestor. They moved into different regions with different environmental conditions at some point in their recent past and they diverged from each other and they formed two separate but very similar species they don't normally breed with each other and then somehow in some place they came back together and ended up in the same range and then a parent from one species and a parent from the other had a baby plant and that baby plant kept both copies of all the gene sets from both parents so now it has it's a hybrid Uh literally it's a hybrid it has two copies from each species wow so that's the aloe part. It means you've got two different origins, okay. you know, um, all going into one. So finding the gene that makes a four-leaf clover was an enormous trial of sorting through which genome it came from and which parent yeah. and all of this, all so, of this nonsense. Um, the four-leaf clover specifically has four genomes. Did it talk yeah. about how well, many the three-leaf clover has? Uh, all of all of the clovers, three leaf or four leaf, have the four okay. have the four complete sets of genes okay. in there. Um, so, 
it just means that finding the one gene on one of those four sets responsible that, for that responsible mutation. for that mutation took them a lot longer at time. Okay. But it turns out it's just a normal, uh, a normal kind of gene. You know, we you can see this sort of thing happen in other organisms. You know, people are born with an extra finger or toe. Sometimes it's uh, just one of those genes that controls how many times this certain cellular process happens. Okay. So it's not uh, a wildly unusual mutation mm -hmm. or gene that causes this but the really fascinating part is it just took them so long to find it because this thing just has so many genes in it <laughs> um but that's you know that funny. that sort of hybridization happens in mm -hmm. plants a lot um mm -hmm. like corn and a lot of the other plants that we eat this has happened in its history if you go back some mm -hmm. long period of time you know two different species diverged from the same parent they came back together and created a hype uh, a polyploid you know mm -hmm. a hybrid that has all these genes from all over it and eventually the extra genes kind of get whittled down and and lost and you return to this situation where you've got two copies mm -hmm. um and you you throw out anything inessential but but these clovers that hasn't happened yet they're still carrying around all that baggage from from both parents yeah. so that yeah, so is, a lot of plants are polyploid. I know yeah. strawberries and bananas both have a ton of copies, right? Yeah. Which is why if we do fun kid experiments where we want to isolate the DNA, mm -hmm. we have them grind up a strawberry or a banana because yeah. there's just a ton of genetic material there, in there. There is indeed, yeah. You know why bananas are seedless? Why? Well, because they're triploid. Okay. So in the in the field, they'll grow these, they'll you know take seeded plants and then reproduce them in some fashion or another, like clonally or, or through, you know, a parent stock okay. that they'll produce these, these new plants, which are triploid. They have three copies of every gene, mm -hmm. oh. uh, two from one parent and one from the other, or, or reproduced through a clonal kind of process where it's just coming from leaf tissue or something. Uh -huh. I don't mm -hmm. know exactly how they do it in bananas, but I do know that the ones that we eat that are seedless, they make them seedless by having them be triploid. When those cells divide, trying to create new, like, um, sperm or egg yeah. cells, essentially, right. to make a new generation. You're gonna have an odd number of, odd number of, um, mm. of genes going to each that. one. It's gonna have one of some and two of another, and it cannot handle uh -huh. it. So the seeds never produced yeah. in those plants. So you can't use them to grow new ones except sure. through, but through it's like totally a cutting. Healthy. There's nothing. You know, yeah, there's nothing we, wrong yeah. with it. It's just we have no problems with it. It's just got an odd number. So yeah. an odd <laughs> number of. An odd number of genes cool. doesn't normally lead to another generation being possible because it's got to it's got to produce its own baby cool. plants. And that's and, how yeah. I think uh, mules, mules and donkeys. I believe I that's, that's correct. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. So if you cross a horse with a donkey, you mm -hmm. get a mule. Right. Mm -hmm. But mules are sterile; they can't have their own offspring. And I think that's why. Oh, I didn't. know I'm not that. totally sure, but that. yeah, usually it has to do with problems in um, the process of meiosis which is how you make those sperm and egg yeah um, cells. yeah and if you have an odd number of chromosomes mm -hmm. or genes in those in your normal cells then dance. yeah you can be just fine in all your other cells but you can't you can't yep. do that part you can't divide it in half and get an even number of copies of everything yep so it will normally fail but that is we i apologize for the that. nerdiness but i love that stuff <laughs> no, this is no, what i this is what i do with my time to me anyway <laughs> so this is what i do for fun well so. i think as our last little salute to saint patrick's day i'm gonna give you a very brief insight um behind the science of the color green okay i've heard of it yeah oh, you've the heard of this green? i've heard of the color green you've yeah. heard of the color green this is this is familiar to me yes well Green light, which has a wavelength between 490 and 570 nanometers, 
is, um, well, uh, let me back up and say any color you see is light that is being reflected off of an object. Uh -huh. So when we have a green shirt, that shirt is absorbing all colors of light except for green, which is being reflected off. Okay. And our eyes are capturing that. So when we see green, we're seeing our eyes are capturing any kind of light that has a wavelength between 490 to 570. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that's the science it's behind just how fast the light waves are, are traveling. Rever reverberating back and forth. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, right. that's cool. So... That, that applies to any green object, regardless of what it is, I suppose. Green beer, green... Correct. Everything. So, <laughs> so just as you drive around over this coming, this coming weekend, or when, when is St. Patrick's Day now? The 17th? Well, today's the 13th, yeah. so, so in four days. I guess this is the weekend, isn't it? I've, yes. I probably should be aware of that. Um, <laughs> so this Thursday, the 17th, um, just when you see green everywhere, remember you are seeing a wavelength mm -hmm. yes. uh, of a particular range and not another one. I couldn't get away with us not talking about wavelength. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on this St. Patrick's Day Sunday. Um, this is KCOU 88.1 and have a good Sunday afternoon.